Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Emily Tampkin, and you're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Today, I'm speaking to Katie Stallard. Katie is the senior editor for China and Global Affairs here at The New Statesman, and she is the author of the brand new book, Dancing on Bones, History and Power in China, Russia, and North Korea. Katie, welcome to the other side of the mic. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. I, I fear you're interviewing prowess. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, congratulations on the publication of the book. Those of you, I said this on the Thursday podcast, but those of you who regularly read Katie in the New Statesman know what a wonderful writer and reporter she is. And this book is just hundreds of pages of evidence of that. So to start out, I was curious reading it because, not curious because you explain why in the book, but for our listeners, one interesting thing. So this book is about how autocrats use history and misuse history to cling to power or to remain in power. Often we'll see books with Russia and China together or with China and North Korea together. But you do something, I think, quite interesting in taking Russia and China and North Korea and assessing them as a trio. Why that combination? So it started out as a plan uh, just to look at Russia and China. Those were the two countries that I was really focused on. There were the two countries I had lived and worked in as a journalist, and they, it would have been easier to do that. They naturally complement each other um, quite well. But once I started looking at North Korea for work, so I was based in, in Beijing as the Asia correspondent for Sky News, and I was covering North Korea very regularly, and then eventually got the chance to, to travel to North Korea and work, report on the ground there. I realized that all of the things I was interested in about how Russia and China use history were in North Korea, but to the nth degree. So it, as soon as you go there, you are hit by how present the wartime past is in North Korea. And it really felt, if I want to look at how autocrats are manipulating history and the role it plays in their contemporary rule, then I have to look at North Korea too. So it was a slightly unscientific approach and it was a mammoth undertaking, but I really feel it's important to, to look broadly at how this history is being used. And also to look at, these are three countries that are regularly in our headlines that we're reporting on, we're reading about, they top the lists of, of, of greatest threats. So I felt it was worth looking at them in more detail and trying to understand effectively from the inside out, what are the arguments that those in power are making as to why they should be in power, and in the case of North Korea, why they should be developing these enormous missiles and nuclear weapons. You make a point toward the very end of the book, which is that obviously it's not only autocrats who will occasionally gloss over certain chapters right. of history or who will have certain narratives. 
Can you speak a bit about some of the distinctions between maybe historical narratives, even manipulated historical narratives in democracies and the kind that you describe by autocrats in this book? Yes, I wanted to be really clear about this. And, you know, as somebody who grew up in the UK where, you know, the idea of the, the blitz spirit is brought out for all sorts of events from football tournaments to, to bad weather, but also played a really significant role in the political um, campaigning around the Brexit referendum. You saw Churchill's imagery, you heard references to, to the UK during that war being really mobilised by particularly the Leave side of that referendum. And now living here in the United States where we, we had Donald Trump set up his 1776 Patriotic Education Commission and speak about the past as this glorious and sacred myth that, that couldn't be challenged and try to make the argument here that it was in fact unpatriotic to look too deeply into American history and to look at the, the darker aspects of that past. So I wanted to be clear that you know, the, the impulse to do this is, is not limited to, to autocrats. It's a very effective political tool and anyone who's interested in getting or keeping power it would be tempted to to use uh, some of these tools, but uh, I guess we as citizens should understand whose interests that's serving, that it's not ours. I think when you hear the leaders of these regimes, the way I came to think about it was they were always almost weaponizing the idea of patriotism and deciding that they, mm -hmm. as those in power, were the ultimate patriots. They were the ones who were defending the country, standing up to their enemies, and therefore anyone who was against them was against the country and unpatriotic. And that's a, it's a very, it's a very effective, and a very powerful argument, but it doesn't actually work to solve any of the, the real problems in the country. It works to keep those people in power and to keep existing power structures in place. And that's, that's not in the wider population's interest. So I, the, the point I came out to in the book is you know, we should be really careful and really guarded against attempts to do this. And we should look at history critically. It's comforting, it's very nice to believe that you're citizens of, of a great country that can do no wrong, but that doesn't actually work to solve any of the problems that the country's facing in, in the current day. One of the challenges, I think, in discussing this is that people hear phrases like historical memory or historical narratives or remembrance, and I think can sometimes assume that you're speaking about something, not you, but the, the, the person speaking about this is speaking about something quite dry and academic and removed from tangible material politics. But as you say, the latter has a great effect on the former. So can you give an example from the book of maybe a moment in history that was, was particularly effectively taken out of textbooks or out of the classroom, out of the, the academy and weaponized for political gain. Well, we're seeing this happen right now with Russia in Ukraine. Hearing the arguments Putin is making for what he calls the, the special operation there, but what is a, an unprovoked war of aggression, he is basing that on this heavily manipulated version of history that he has been cultivating now for decades. And you're right that, it, and it certainly, I came to this a little bit as sort of intellectually curious about how, how does this work and wanting to trace back how has this history been used? What are these stories now? The morning Putin announced that he was deploying his forces to Ukraine, so February 24th, I remember it very clearly waking up that morning and hearing the words that he used. And when he said he was carrying out a denazification campaign, I really just felt sick. I felt 
I understood this or I felt I understood this on a on more of an abstract intellectual level and to see this narrative now being being used in this very cynical but terribly effective way was just wrenching and it, there is evidence that that is that is holding up that Russian soldiers are are going into Ukrainian towns and telling people that they've come to free Ukraine from Nazis these the way that the past has been twisted and and distorted in Russia is having these very clear very dangerous real world effects so, so Putin is drawing both on the idea Russia is the hero nation that saved the world from Nazism in the Second World War, which is a, which is a narrative he's really, he's really pushed heavily since he came to power at, at the turn of the millennium. He, he's elevated the memory of that war to, to what people talk about now as, as effectively a national religion. So he's been selling this idea that Russia is this great, good, glorious country that, that can do no wrong and always stands up against its enemies, um, specifically Nazism and, and fascism. And over really since the mid 2000s since the color revolutions in eastern europe but but then intensely since 2014 and the maidan revolution in kiev he's been pushing this idea and his propagandists have have really been pushing hard on this that there is a real fascist and nazi threat in the in ukraine that nazis have taken over the government that they're carrying out terrible atrocities against civilians which is not true but is the version of history that he is now advancing to to argue that they need to use military force and go in and, and liberate Ukraine. So it, I've, I have felt quite sick watching this all play out and watching these historical narratives be used for such just devastating and, and terrible purposes in Ukraine. Especially since you wrote this book, you started working on it years before this latest Russian war in Ukraine and certainly wrote it before, before this happened and are now seeing it in real time. So I, I want to speak a bit about the differences between the three cases that you use in your book. But first, I wanted to, to just speak a little bit more about the similarities. You, the chapters in the book are, there's myths, there's lies, victims, patriots. What are, what, are there certain key building blocks that you think, yes, there are variations between this historical manipulation or that, but basically every effective one has X, Y, Z? Yeah, I think at the core of all of these narratives are the idea that these countries have been attacked and they've suffered terribly in the past. And there is truth in that. Russia and China suffered terribly during the, the Second World War. Their losses were in the tens of millions. And so these are real historical experiences. And most families have some link to that conflict. They have relatives who died. It, it is a genuinely effective and, and resonant piece, part of their history. So it's you know, there are elements of, of truth in it. And likewise, in North Korea's sort of primary myth is the idea that they were attacked during the Korean War, that, well, that firstly, that the first came, liberated the country from Japanese colonial rule at the end of the Second World War, and that then they were attacked quite soon after that in 1950 by South Korea and the United States in what became the Korean War, which is not true. It was North Korea that invaded the South. But the, the suffering and the casualties that followed in the North were also very real. North Korea uh, was bombed to ruins. So there are real experiences of suffering and sacrifice and hardship at the core of all of these narratives. But I think what they all have in common then is the idea that, and therefore we need strong leaders, we need to build up our military strength, we can never be weak again. So it, it, it is manipulated to lead to a point where 
then what you need is a very strong autocratic ruler and to absolutely not compromise with any outside powers ever again. So it, I think that the main thing that, that that unites them all is that there is there are glimmers of truth in it and that, it, that there's a version of a sort of a glorious past when they've, they have achieved great victories by coming together as they're being urged to do now behind strong central leaders. And that if you're somebody who supports the country and who wants to see it safe and, and peaceful and have a happy life for your children, then that's what you should want now. You should support this strong rule. You should support building up their military strength and you should be very wary of enemies, which in the case of all three generally ends up being in, in some form or other the West and the United States. As you were speaking, I was reminded of something that's often said about Viktor Orban's Hungary, which is that, and this is not to say that Hungarian, the Hungarian people throughout history have not suffered losses, but that the way in which they tell history, the way in which they tell history is such that Hungary is always the victim and never the loser of a war mm -hmm. or never culpable for siding with the wrongs. Like it's, it's never that the, the leaders of Hungary made the wrong choice with whom to side. It's always that they were the victim. Mm -hmm. This is one way that people try to understand Orban's Hungary today. Do you think that there's an element of that too, right? Not, and I'm, I'm, again, I'm not saying that there wasn't very real suffering experienced by the people of these countries. But Stalin was was not a blameless leader in the run up to World War II. Do, do you do you see some of that here as well? Yeah, I think what you end up with in all three cases is very stripped back, quite one dimensional narrative. So it's not if it was if the argument that they were making was these are terrible periods in our history and we should remember them and learn the lessons of them. That's fair enough, but that's not what they're interested in remembering. They're interested in remembering this very stripped back, simplified story of the wars, which doesn't include all of the mistakes of the leadership. So it, particularly, right. as, as you mentioned, Stalin in, in the Great Patriotic War, as World War II is known in Russia, this is not the whole story of that war. So it's not the strategic blunders. It's not the pact to divide up Europe. It's it's not the punishment battalions that, that came into battle behind their own side. It's the glory and the heroic sacrifice and the far-seeing vision and strategic leadership of those at the top. And likewise, in, in North Korea's version of, of the Korean War, which they very almost lose in, in the early months, once the United States and the, and the um, UN command forces are involved, Kim's forces are pushed right back to the, to the Chinese border. But in the version that they now tell of that story, it's a strategic retreat, which is a brilliant vision that Kim Il-sung has come up with to, to lure these forces up into North Korea's heartland and then be able to attack. So they, it's, there is no acknowledgement of the things that went wrong or the mistakes those in power made or th the terrible atrocities and the suffering that they caused. It's all about shifting the blame outside and beyond the regime to these external enemies, which are much more useful for those who are in power. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From The New Statesman comes a new podcast. Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Songs are like tattoos, Mitchell said on Blue. Having one written about you is immortality and fiction rolled into one. 
featuring writing from our authors, including Kate Mossman on Joni Mitchell's former muse and lover, Jeremy Cliff on his journey through France before this year's presidential election, and Sophie McBain on the refugee crisis. Don't die, he kept shouting. He didn't answer when Mardwe screamed back, Who is dying? Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads wherever you get your podcasts. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. We've been speaking about the similarities, but were there differences or distinctions between the three that really jumped out at you or that you thought were particularly salient for understanding how memory making works in these different regimes? One of the key differences when I started working on this book, which has become much less so now, was the comparatively freer information, freer access to information in Russia. So when I started looking at the book, you know, I wasn't sure if it would totally work to have North Korea and Russia as part of the same story because they seem to be at such opposite ends of the, the spectrum. The, you know, mm-hmm. Yes, there was censorship in Russia. There was an increasingly authoritarian regime there. But you could still go on the internet and, and look up information. There were still some, albeit under, under you know, serious threat, there were still independent media outlets. And yet these narratives were very effective over the course of working on on the book and really accelerating markedly over the last couple of years. That freedom and the ability to voice those independent views in Russia has really been shut down. And serious people are now talking about the North Koreanization of of information in Russia. So I guess what, what struck me at the start was how 
regardless of the information environment you were in, how effective these stories and this version of history seem to be. But, but over time, they've, they've come to resemble each other more and more. The, the key major difference just to, to, to put out there and be clear about is you know, North Korea's version of history is, is partly made up. Some parts of the, of the story just aren't true. The idea that, that mm -hmm. Kim Il-sung liberated North Korea from, from colonial rule, or in fact, the whole Korean peninsula, as the, as the story goes there in 1945, you know, that is a total fantasy. He was in the Soviet Union at the time. He wasn't even on the Korean peninsula. But when you look back at how that story has evolved over time, he's gradually written into the story. So in the very early years of the North Korean state, when Soviet officers are in control, he goes to one of those in command. Could you write the Korean partisans back into the story of the liberation? Because they want to be, they want to be seen to be part of the liberation story. And the, and the Soviet officers refuse because they want to give the glory to, to, to Stalin and, and the Soviet army. And they're worried that if they give the Koreans too much credit, that they'll get out of control and they'll get too much power on their own terms. But over the decades, as Kim Il-sung amasses power, he, he becomes not only, you know, he, he starts off with the Korean forces assisting the, the Red Army in their liberation of the Korean Peninsula. But <laughs> 10 years later, it's the Korean forces who are in the lead and the Red Army who are supporting them. And now, as the story goes, it's essentially only the, the Korean forces. So it's, it's Kim Il-sung and his um, anti-Japanese guerrillas who storm back down the Korean Peninsula, vanquish the Japanese and the whole that the land erupts in praise of Kim Il-sung's visionary leadership. So there is fiction and fantasy in North Korea's version of history that is not the case with in, in Russia and China. Aspects of the story have been manipulated. It's a very selective version of the story and it's a heavily distorted version of the story. But at its heart are, are, are real facts mm -hmm. and real suffering. So I, I guess that's, the, that's one of the key differences between these three. Just two more questions for you. The first is, there seems to be sort of tension because on the one hand, you talk about how these narratives are used to inspire patriotism and good feeling and belief on the part of the people in this political project and in their country. But on the other hand, it's authoritarian and in some cases just an all-out dictatorship. You have a, a chapter in the book called Control. How do we square this? On the one hand, this desire for popular buy-in into these narratives, and on the other hand, a desire to <laughs> squash any real role on the part of the public. This is the fundamental lie that is the heart at the heart of all of these stories, and this idea that these leaders are working to make their countries great and and respected and successful and prosperous. That's not what they're genuinely interested in in achieving. If Putin was genuinely interested in developing Russia and having effective healthcare roads, access to, to opportunities for, for Russian citizens. He, he could have used a, a fraction of the, the wealth that he and his associates have stolen from the country over the, the past decades to achieve that. I think what, what we're seeing is that in all three cases, they, they substitute their own interests for those of the state. So the, the sort of shift they make is if you want what's best for the country. And, and I mean, China makes this argument ex explicitly. The, the Chinese Communist Party had the, the, the 100th anniversary of, of the founding of the party in 2021. And the key slogan there was, without the CCP, there would be no new China. The argument that they are each making in, the, in their different ways is that without us, there would be nothing. Without us, 
the country would be in, in, in great danger. It would be once again at the mercy of these foreign enemies. You need us. We're protecting the country. We're making the country great. And therefore, that's why, that's why we have to take tough measures. The, these countries need strong central leadership to be able to be strong and prosperous and safe and peaceful. So they, they substitute what's best for the country with what's best for their regimes. But they also, I want to be really clear that they all three do use extensive repression, information control. They, mm-hmm. There are various tools that they are each using. But what I, what I wanted to do was to try to explore, but what is, what is the case that they make for why they should be in power? Because I think sometimes when we look at these countries, we tend to see them as almost sort of Bond villain-esque, that they're running these regimes from, from these, in Putin's case, extremely large tables at the heart of the, the, heart of the Kremlin. They press a button. Or extremely small or tables. extremely small tables, no medium-sized tables. They press a button, they pull a lever, and their will is done. And, and people fall into line because they're repressive autocrats. And repression and corruption are huge parts of that and how they stay in power. But they are also all making a, a, a case to rally either to rally genuine support or to enforce the appearance of support so that nobody knows for sure what everyone, what others really believe. Um, It creates the impression that these leaders are genuinely popular and that they're acting in the best interests of the country. And it makes their own positions more secure. I think it's Timothy Fry who, in his book on Putin, Weak Strongman, talks about it. It's a lot easier to be a popular autocrat than an unpopular autocrat. So part of the argument Mm. each of them are making is that we carry the will of the people. We can rally genuine support around our leadership. Therefore, under us, the the system is secure. You don't start, you don't need to start looking about, looking for who's going to come next, who might be able to protect your interests better in in terms of of the regime elite. We're popular, we're in control, we're going to be in power for a very long time. So if you want your interests and, and your and your income to be protected, you need to support our rule and you need to stand firm behind us. So it's a it's the lie that it is at the heart of this is that they're protecting the country and empowering their people when really in all three cases they're looking out for for themselves and their own interests and their own hold in power above anything else. Before I let you go, we've spoken about the current Russian war in Ukraine, obviously, this is a tragically timely book, but beyond that, that it's happening now all around us, what do you hope that readers will, will take from the book? So I think one thing is just a little bit more insight into, you know, I think I came to this with, with certain views about what these countries were like, how they were run, what it must be like growing up and, and living there. And I hope that by reading the book, that picture will become a, a bit more nuanced and we could all have a better idea of what's going on inside these three countries. And I think, you know, I think what is unhelpful is when we sitting here in the United States frame, these three countries are, they are threats to our system. Their, their leaders are, are autocrats. And therefore we need to be very wary of citizens of these countries, of, of contact mm-hmm. with these countries. I guess first and foremost, the argument I, I, I want to make is we should separate those who are in power and how they are manipulating the past and empowering themselves with, you know, 
their citizens, people who are fed these lies and required to repeat these lies. So we should understand that the pressures people in these countries are under and why they might be saying some of that. So when we see the pictures of the next North Korean military parade and we see the people, you know, collapsing in, in hysterical tears at the sight of Kim Jong-un and, and goose-stepping through Kim Il-sung Square, we should understand that people don't have a choice but to act like that and that we shouldn't assume that, that these people ha have been brainwashed, that they genuinely support these leaders. We, sh you know, we should understand the stories that they're being told and how the you know, propaganda and, and control and repression works in each of these three countries. Katie's book is called Dancing on Bones, History and Power in China, Russia and North Korea. It is available online in bookstores. Katie, congratulations again on the publication of your wonderful book. And thank you for, for joining me today. Thank you so much for, for having me. And it's really exciting to, to have the physical book and be able to hold it here in my hands and, and sometimes sleep with it under my pillow. This has been the World Review for the New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage, including by Katie, on newstatesman.com slash international. If you have enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or an enemy and rate us and leave us a nice review. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. The team will be back on Thursday. And I am Emily Tampkin. Thanks for listening and until next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.